Hello listeners, I'm Melissa Roach, and this is Below the Radar, a Knowledge Democracy podcast. Below the Radar is created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement and is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. On this episode of Below the Radar, our host M. Johal is joined by Tatalia Nahaney, a Squamish matriarch and decolonial facilitator and strategist. She's in conversation with Am about founding decolonizing practices and how she works with people to untangle neocolonial systems of oppression and to resist the comfort of complacency. Since the time of this recording, Tatalia has decided to go by her ancestral name, and although Am refers to her as Michelle, she's using Tatalia now. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to Below the Radar. This is Am Joha. I'm really happy to be here with Michelle Nahaney. Welcome. Hi, thanks very much for having me today. Michelle, you've been doing a lot of incredible decolonizing work in different ways from your master's work to the other work that you do out in the community. I'm wondering if we can sort of begin with some of your personal story of decolonizing and when and how that part of the journey began for you. Yeah, it's, I'm only actually a few years into working with the word decolonizing. Even though I was a communications director, as a graphic designer in First Nations specific context for 20 plus years, I never felt comfortable using the word and I didn't have the critical analysis of how colonialism impacted me. So in that sense, I was successfully colonized. It wasn't until I went back to do an MA in SFU that I started to read Indigenous scholarship and I started to become very passionate about taking that word out of academia and bringing it into more daily lives, especially in the Indigenous context that I work in. So there are different, what I frame now as neocolonial oppressions, things that I was talking about with my friends who, you know, we're all in contract positions, we're um, working for different organizations, and there wasn't really a way to talk about the things that were coming up for us. So... That's why I became really passionate about not using the word decolonization, but using the words decolonizing practices. So things that we can, I call it actions we can take, words we can say, ideas that we can learn or unlearn to undo colonial impacts. Because the word decolonization, it's just somewhere where we're not actually going to get to, but decolonizing practices are things that we can you know, work towards that word and it just makes it more accessible. As you were working on your graduate work, what writing and thinkers did you find interesting in terms of thinking through this idea of decolonizing practices? Yeah, so really I looked at eight writers, eight Indigenous scholars, and mapped ideas, you know, like Leanne Simpson, like Dayaki, Alfred, and looked at everything from, you know, the idea of being a warrior, the idea of being back to the land, ideas of returning to our Indigenous languages. And then I actually started to critique that, you know, as a working class Indigenous person, I really felt like those are things that I'm not going to achieve, right? Like, I'm not going to have time to go back to the land when I'm raising a child. I haven't had a vacation in three years. You know, I'm trying to survive in Vancouver, but that doesn't mean that I can't decolonize. And so I guess I, you know, I critiqued some of the writers 
in that, you know, those are all great ideas if we can get there. And I do absolutely, of course, support Indigenous language resurgence. I'm the board chair for Quiotstalmo here in Vancouver. So I use my skills to support language resurgence. I always joke about my my mouth is too English, <laughs> like to to get some of the pronunciations, but I use my communication skills and my corporate fundraising skills for folks who can do that. And so I guess, yeah, so in my thesis, I've got a survey of pathways to decolonization that I'm looking at, and I'm pulling the more accessible pathways forward and critiquing some of the more out of reach ways to go. And then really get down into like that it's such a personal journey. So my thesis is called Decolonizing Identity, Indian Girl to Squamish Matriarch, and looking at all the naming conventions, because of course I'm a communications major, so the power and the language and talking about being born Squamish and then going to school and learning that I'm Indian, which of course was loaded with so much meaning, especially in the early 70s. And But my family took on the term native because we were quite involved with activism. And I continue to work with the Native Women's Association of Canada to this day. And then, of course, you know, First Nations and Aboriginal and Indigenous, we all know sort of where we're at now with it. And even like where my work goes and yet, you know, my community is still legally called Mission Indian Reserve. I still legally carry an Indian status card. So it's that double face that I really start to work with in my in the game that I designed and and in the way that I talk about neocolonialism is the double face of things that look like helping. It looks like we're getting better, but we're clearly not. Now, in terms of your specific approach to decolonizing practices, you, of course, work in many different ways and how you intervene in these questions. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how you've taken your own unique approach to intervene and, and work with different organizations and people related to that. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's nothing that I would have predicted that I do for a living, but um, in fall 2017, I designed a giant board game called Senokayan Ladders, which is really a series of scenarios mapped out on a giant snakes and ladders game board. The snake being the Senokai, the double-headed serpent, and the ladders are Chen Chen Stwai, which are the our Squamish term of lifting each other up. And so I work with all kinds of organizations. We spend four hours together playing the game, talking about the scenarios. And I do it in a way that I'm just helping people shift the way that they see things. And um, I received an award from the City of Vancouver, an award of excellence in diversity and inclusion, even though I never use those words in my work. <laughs> but it's funny because a lot of people don't want to use the decolonizing word, and, and that's fine. I use it in this very particular way. And so we've worked with, we probably do four to five workshops a month. Lately, we've been working with City of Vancouver staff. We've worked with NGOs we work with, um, just yeah, like larger groups and smaller groups. And every session, there's three people playing the game. It's a facilitated dialogue. So just getting to share things that are, are happening on the ground because all of the scenarios in the game are real. And so they're things that people don't think about as oppression. Like I've been talking a lot about the honorarium economy, for example. So the precarious employment of Indigenous peoples you know, but justified through this honorarium economy uh, where it looks like we're being helped, it looks like we're being included, but really, you know, everyone's still just sort of being kept in this very uneasy state. 
So what have the, some of the outcomes been where decolonizing practices is going next in your view now that you've been working on this for a number of, of years? Yeah, two really neat things that are happening is that we are working with other nations who want to deliver the game. So the game is really just a framework of understanding. So for example, we were spending a week, meaning my husband and I spent a week in uh, the Seashot territory, which everybody knows as Port Alberni. And um, we are working to translate the game into concepts from their Indigenous language and using scenarios that are relative to the topics that they want to talk about in their community. So there will be a, a game board produced in the next couple of months from people who are deeply involved in what they're calling courageous conversations. And so it's a licensing program in a sense, but, you know, decolonial in the sense that it's, you know, rooted in Indigenous languages and Indigenous ways. And um, so that's one example. We already have another game board called the Treaty 7 edition, when they've kept the teachings of Sinokai and and Chen Chen's Twai, but uh, it's delivered in Treaty 7 territory by colleagues of ours from the Calgary Foundation. So we're starting to test that, the scalability, I guess, of the project, you know, just with friendly with friendly groups, because it's, you know, it's, it's all new and it's not a business. It is a social innovation, I guess, an Indigenous social innovation. So we're in the middle of testing that. So I think what's next is to, to get good at figuring out, you know, how that works, how the facilitators can be cared for, how we maintain the quality of the delivery and using the tool of the game to achieve the goals of different groups. You know, we've uh, one of our previous guests on the show, Ginger Gusnell Myers, who worked in Aboriginal relations with the city of Vancouver. And now that she's not working there, we've been collaborating a few times on some public events related to planners working at the city of Vancouver, even within the park board, and even a need kind of regionally within how cities are thinking about decolonizing practices. Because I think planning as a particular type of profession has you know, a real connection to colonialism and linear rationalism and all of these types of things. And as you've gone through your work, working with different public agencies and others, what are some of your reflections as you do this work with different organizations from government agencies to nonprofit organizations in terms of what the opportunities are to establish a practice around decolonizing practices that would be useful in a way from your perspective? Yeah, well, so for me, I really am targeting in at a certain area, which is how we work together and how we work together better. And I stay with that through a very much a belief in one person at a time, one conversation at a time model of social change. And that's sort of what helps me say it because, you know, wanting to change these huge systems is a lot. And so I think I'll just share some of the main themes. Every workshop we do, folks write a giveaway and a takeaway. And so their giveaway is the thing that they commit to. And the takeaway is the the thing that they learned or unlearned that day. So some of the things that the main things that people are coming up with, and this is looking at, we've probably worked with around 1200 individuals, I would say in the last year in Vancouver, Calgary, and like I said, in Seashot. So the things people are focusing on are continuing to learn ask questions and share information, build relationships, center relationships, learning about the land that they live on, learning about their host nations. And so, 
you know, for some of us sort of more woke types, you know, this is not a new conversation for many people. It's very new. Like they only understand territorial acknowledgement as the email uh, footer that they're supposed to use. Right. And so when I'm in there in our dialogue, we're really talking about the deep personal commitment that a territorial acknowledgement is and helping them understand, you know, what it means to connect to the land and also for each of us to connect to our own ancestry. That's another decolonizing practice that we're bringing forward. It's a big aha moment for people to see that this is not just something that Indigenous people are doing for them. It's it's a personal act and it's, you know, your your own decolonizing practice. And then just starting to unembed yourself from all those systems, you know, develop some resistance, which is, is a new conversation for a lot of people. I think another one is just people talking about privilege and complacency. So we do spend quite a bit of time sharing like complacency as a fluid, as a fluid space, as something that you can decide what you're going to do about it. And I think that really helps in terms of shifting like some of the guilt and shame people are initially processing when they think about decolonization. And because I, you know, it's not, it is a game, but I'm talking about land equity. I'm talking about intergenerational financial equity gained through theft of indigenous lands, right? I'm, I'm very clear of what I think about that. And, and that math isn't being discussed enough. So, but when we talk about it, like within the game as a structure and, and we give a place to talk about it, then people seem to be more open to say, okay, what will I do about that? You know, my family has owned this property and, and I know that I'm more comfortable than my Indigenous uh, friends. So, for an example, I had a friend really challenge me to say, well, what do you expect me to do about that? And I could just say, I can't tell you what to do. Like, that would be colonial, right? So I can tell you what I think about land and that I mean, all need to talk about the math. Anyway, she came back a couple of weeks later and she said, you know, I've decided that I'm going to start donating to Indigenous housing. And I'm going to tell 10 friends to do that, right? And so that just felt like such a good day's work to me, you know, that I supported someone to sort of process their complacency, come up with a personal commitment. And I think that's, you know, if I'm doing this with, you know, a thousand people, <laughs> like what else is possible, right? So that keeps me going. I guess in terms of the takeaways that people are thinking of is understanding decolonization as this ongoing complex personal process. So I explain it similar to the word healing and that it's different for everybody every single day, depending on what's going on with your family, what's going on in the news. And people also understanding that they don't have to be perfect, that we're, we're in this new space and we're making mistakes. But the problem has been that we don't talk about the mistakes. So the game has created this like metaphor for the do-over, you know, that they're going to slide down the serpent and then we're going to go, okay, what are you going to do different this time? so they can come through the game and do it differently. So talking about perfectionism as a colonial tool. People get quite interested too when I'm sharing the concept of Chen Chen's Dwai as Squamish law, that this is a Squamish law, a law like connected to this territory. And so that's like not a well-known thing and that Chen Chen's Dwai, the law is lifting each other up. And to explain to people the difference between lifting each other up and helping, you know that the word helping you know, and first that somebody needs help and someone's able to help. Intention so is a different thing. It's both people having power. And then just really focusing, supporting people in the discomfort. That if you're uncomfortable, it probably means that you're doing it right. That you're in a decolonial 
mindset, you know, versus the comfort of colonialism. So those are the major themes that are coming up in the work and just things that I get to talk about, you know, every every couple. I can't do the work every day. It's too heavy, but a couple per week. Those are the kind of dialogues I'm supporting. I think, you know, when the Truth and Reconciliation Commission happened and came out with their calls for action, different public institutions have been doing similar work, but it's, as a term, it's been critiqued a lot because you see people like, you know, the Prime Minister Trudeau using the term and it gets used differently by different people. How do you draw a distinction between reconciliation and decolonization practices? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love talking about that. And I've been talking about it as like the stall of reconciliation, that we're in a stall of it. Right now when people rush out, you know, to do reconciliation with a colonial mindset because they didn't decolonize first. And I talk about that it's not an either or. In fact, I see them working in tandem, decolonize, indigenize, reconcile, and self-actualization. So those four things working together in tandem, it's not one or the other. And it's decolonizing first. And you know, also that reconciliation, like, you know, is it to go back to an original state and the original state was not balanced. So that's another flaw, the word. I'm more of a fan of redress. I think that's, you know, the next level conversation, but we have to get comfortable with these other things first. Uh, There is a square in my game about committing to reconciliation. And then the serpent down is fail to operationalize your commitment to reconciliation, right? And it's funny as an Indigenous consultant how many times I've been in conversations and, oh, well, Michelle's here now, you know, Michelle will, you know, get us into reconciliation, like, that's part of my job, right? And so it's become sort of the thing that the government will do or the Natives will do or someone else will do. So, yeah, it's it's decolonization first and reconciliation may be the state that you get to once you do all of these other things. But there's a self part that's that's really the key to all of it. Great. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us on Below the Radar. Okay, thanks very much. Thank you for joining us on Below the Radar to hear from Tatalia Nahaney. Head to the links in the show notes to learn more about her workshops and a new nonprofit initiative she's co-founded called Mitelnex Leadership Society. Stay up to date with Below the Radar by following us on Twitter at BTR underscore pod and subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for tuning in.